Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, July 19th, 2021. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editorial Director Peter Soretta, and joining me on his podcast is senior writer and weekend editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. So we have a bunch of news. A lot of it involves Marvel in some way, and some of it is spoiler-ish. We'll keep the spoiler-ish news till later in the episode so if you have not seen loki or black widow we'll we'll give you a heads up on when you can tune out then but everything up front is not a spoiler as far as i know (laughs) so uh you know right before we were about to hit record on this podcast some news just broke so we're gonna get to this briefly i don't really have uh much on this because chris evangelista is actually currently writing the story as we speak and that is we have a new we have a director for the blade reboot from marvel studios brad tell us about it yeah as we found out not too long ago there's a blade reboot on the way from marvel that will star mahershala ali uh as the the vampire hunter and now we have a director for the movie uh deadline found out that basam Tariq, who is best known for directing a movie called mogul mowgli starring riz ahmed uh, will be taking the helm of this uh, new version of Blade. Um, he's kind of an up-and-coming director. Mogul Mowgli is his uh, best-known film, and it actually... Uh, it hasn't won... even come out uh, domestically. It's only been out overseas, right? Yeah, and uh, but it did win a BAFTA um, over there. It won Outstanding British Film of the Year uh, in 2020. So that bodes well for you know him as a filmmaker. Previously, he also directed a couple documentaries, uh, one called Eleven Eight Sixteen, and another called These Birds Walk. So uh, this is, you know, continues kind of the trend of Marvel taking a chance on more up and coming filmmakers who haven't gotten a lot of experience in the blockbuster arena. People like, uh, you know, Kate Shortland and Chloe Zhao, and so they're they're clearly putting their films, you know, in the hands of more uh, auteur filmmakers. Hopefully, you know, giving them a little bit more uh, style and varying things up a bit, as opposed to sticking to the traditional Marvel formula. Yeah, and they've also been giving a chance to a lot of people coming out of Sundance. Like that first film that he did, that documentary you mentioned, Three Birds Walk, was a Sundance-funded documentary uh, they direct, co-directed. 
and uh, he was named one of the F- Filmmaker Magazine's 25 new fil- uh, new faces to watch in independent film in 2012. So he's been around for quite some time. He he actually started out as a blogger for like sites like Boing Boing. So he he was one of us at one <laughs> point. And uh, yeah, he he's uh, from Pakistan, and he he did a TED talk uh, talking about uh, Muslim diversity. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll link that in the show notes, but it, it, it's, it's great to see Marvel, uh, you know, giving a chance to someone who, you know, probably wouldn't get a chance otherwise. I, I want to say that because, you know, he doesn't have like this long track record of films and also, you know, people of uh, from this background usually don't get a, a shot to direct like, you know, a big budget Marvel movie. And I think Disney and Marvel have re- really uh you know, have made it a goal to diversify the the storytellers that are making these upcoming stories, which is actually very cool. But um, I have not seen either of his films. I've heard that the the one that's coming out, uh, what was it called, Mogul Mog Mogli? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it stars um Riz Ahmed, and it's like about this uh, British Pakistani rapper who's based in New York. And before his European tour begins, he's diagnosed with this degenerative autoimmune disease. And he returns to see his Pakistani family in London. So it sounds sounds interesting. And I'm excited to check it out, especially now that we know that this guy's going to have this huge future in, uh, in these big films that like we're all excited to see and talk about yeah yeah okay let's get let's get on to the, the news that we actually intended to talk about i i feel bad because like this just broke like seconds before we started recording and neither of us have any knowledge of this guy's work but it's it's still early and we'll have plenty of time to talk about blade and dive into this guy's work you know that's that's the tough thing you know about when, when hiring filmmakers who are you know uh, a little more lower key in the industry is you know it's it's hard to keep up with everything, but we have plenty of time to dig into that stuff before, yeah. you know, the movie gets into production. And, yeah. and I do love that because then you see a rush of people going out to seeing this film when it comes out in the U.S. And you'll people I'm, I'm sure going to flock to this documentary that he made. Actually, he made two documentaries. Um, so, the, yeah, the, it does uh, spread the love. But speaking you know, if, from a director that we don't know much about, let's go to a director that we know a lot about. Maybe and too is, much. <laughs> maybe too much. <laughs> yeah, and that is Kevin Smith. Uh, Clerks 3 is finally happening. Brad, tell us about it. Yeah, this movie's been in the works for a long time now. Kevin Smith has talked about wanting to do Clerks 3, and at one point there was a complete script. It sounded like he was ready to go, but then it just didn't come together, uh, largely because... Uh, Jeff Anderson, who is plays Randall in the the Viewist universe, as it's known, uh, just wasn't interested in, in coming back. But now, apparently, uh, Kevin Smith ha- he created a whole new script after the the uh, near death experience he had when he had a heart attack a few years back, and basically overhauled his story for Clerks Three, tied that into it, and turned it into something completely different. And Lionsgate has officially. Uh, announced that they bought the rights to the script. They're going to be um, providing the the funding for it. So Kevin Smith finally gets to make it. And it's uh, going to be, for better or worse, his most self-referential and self-indulgent movie <laughs> yet. Um, because here's the, the brief logline, uh, as described in the official press release from Lionsgate. 
In Clerks 3, following a massive heart attack, Randall enlists fellow clerks Dante, Elias, Jay, and Silent Bob to make a movie immortalizing his life at the convenience store that started it all. Um, and so if you're getting a nosebleed right now, that's because th- this is a very Inception-esque movie plot because the original Clerks, you know, that came out in the early 90s as a Sundance movie, you know, launched Kevin Smith's career, was a movie based on Kevin Smith's own life as a convenience store clerk. And, you know, then we got Clerks 2, and now we're getting Clerks 3, which is about these characters that he created about his own life, making the movie that was about his own life to begin with. So, oh boy. Um, I, I don't know. I uh, I like Did the- they already just make a movie about the making of Clerks? Didn't that come out like a year or two ago? Yeah, I mean- the- Yes, yeah, so but Kevin Smith didn't make it. I, I think yeah. he, he might have like thrown his name on as an executive producer and had a cameo, I think, or something like that. But yeah, some other filmmaker who is a Kevin <laughs> Smith fan made a movie about the making of Clerks. So I don't know. Before I get to what you, what you think of this, Brad, I mean, I'm excited that Jeff Anderson is back because I can't see them doing a Clerks movie without him. Like he's one half of Clark's. For sure, you need him. And also Rosario Dawson is back, which is is exciting because mm-hmm. she was the best part of Clark's too. I will say this to counter your your worry that this might be too self indulgent. That I love when filmmakers make things that are uh, personal stories, and especially Kevin Smith. Like you know, I would say you know Clark's and Chase and Amy, which are both two of his most personal films, are probably two of his best films for sure. And I don't, it's, I think for me, it's just that it's, it feels like it has the potential to be a little too much, you know, it's just a little too meta. I, I'm a Kevin Smith fan, even though I haven't loved, you know, his more recent work. And I feel like Jay and Silent Bob didn't quite, you know, hit the mark. And as far as matching up to the style and like comedy of his previous movies, cause it's just I, something has changed about, about his approach to comedy that it isn't quite, what it used to be. Some of it may also be me, you know, growing up a little bit and not as entertained by the same dick and fart jokes, stoner antics. But I, I, I really like clerks too, actually. I know that a lot of people were disappointed in it and, and whatnot, but um, I feel like it has its heart in the right place. And I, I do like the dynamic between Randall and Dante. So I'm, I'm interested to see what he does here. I, I'm at least, you know, intrigued uh, by, by the premise, but I am worried that it will, um, yeah, like I said, be a little too self-indulgent, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Like you, I was a huge Kevin Smith fan. And I feel like the last, you know, handful of movies have not been my cup of tea, including Yoga Hosers, which I f- couldn't even <laughs> couldn't even get through. And I was watching it in a theater at Sundance at the premiere. Uh, I'm just glad that he's making movies that aren't like based on, you know, some conversation on a podcast while he was high. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it, it, it seems like hopefully this one is better well thought out. Is at what ver- I'm going to say. Yeah, at the very least, it'll probably be something very personal to him. Yeah. So, you know, maybe that'll help as well. Yeah. Um, but I want to see Kevin Smith do well. Like, I, I really like that guy. And, uh, you know, when he he is a good storyteller. You know, I, I know some people like to get on him about him and not being a great filmmaker. And I, I feel like he can be a great filmmaker at times. And he, he is a great storyteller. If you go to any of his Q and A's or watch any of Q and A's on uh, home video, like you can see how great of a storyteller he is. So uh, given, 
<laughs> given the room, given uh, also he if he wants to prove himself again, I think uh, that this might be interesting. So, okay, uh, let's move on to this weekend's box o- box office, which is, tells some interesting tales. But let's first talk about the winner of the box office. Brad, who was it? Was it Space Jam or was it Black Widow? It was Space Jam, a new legacy, surprisingly. Uh, this was something that analysts weren't expecting. Uh, the early predictions uh, and projections for the opening weekend for the sequel were around $20 million, But the movie ended up breaking in about $31.6 million, and it dethroned Black Widow from its number one spot. Everyone thought Marvel would be able to stay on top for at least a couple weekends. But uh, the, the 31% uh, critical rating on Rotten Tomatoes didn't stop everybody from going to see Space Jam A New Legacy. And neither did the fact that it's streaming on HBO Max right now. It didn't uh, <laughs> didn't completely destroy its box office prospects. So, um, yeah, it's, this is, it's crazy um, because it's, you know, th- this is a time, too, where, like, movies, even though they're getting wide release and bo- blockbusters are coming back to theaters... Audiences are still, you know, not fully prepared to come back in the numbers that they usually are. And 31.6 million wouldn't necessarily be a great opening weekend for a movie like this if it were the normal times before, you know, the the pandemic. Uh, But this is the fourth highest opening weekend of the year uh, in the pandemic so far. And it's uh, the biggest family opening of the the year, actually, even into the previous year during the pandemic as well. But since we saw, you know, the Croods and A New Age get released. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, uh, there's a whole thing about how um, this is relatively disappointing for Black Widow's box office performance as well. Uh, Oh yeah, I wanted to talk about that. But before we talk about that, have HBO announced how much it has done? Well, I guess it, it, it hasn't done. Like, it's not like the Disney model where you're buying an extra thing, right? Like, yeah, just exactly. Included. Yeah, there's no, like, box office total. I, I don't know if they'll – it usually takes them a little while longer to get, like, the streaming uh, ratings in as far as, like, how many people uh, watched it, like, in its first weekend and, and stuff like that. So, And that's always more complicated, too, because, like – you, you don't always get a breakdown of like how many people watched it finished it and yeah <laughs> and, and finished it or watched you know half of it and gave up or so yeah even the disney numbers last week i think one of my friends did the math and is as great as that um how much did it do on disney plus it was like 60 million or something yeah uh even those numbers that relates to like something like two or three percent of all of disney plus subscribers bought it so it's not like the you know when when you have to pay money, it's it's not all your subscribers even though that's like a big number. Yeah. Um. But uh. Yeah. So Black Widow last week debuted with eighty million domestically, broke the pandemic box office records, and you know Disney sent out this press release. They announced that you know oh that made so much money at the box office, made so much money on Disney Plus. It's doing so well. Well, this second week at the box office told. An interesting different tale here. It represents a huge drop. Uh, What is the drop here? Uh, I don't have it in front of me. 67%. Yeah, 67%, which uh, I think is one of MCU's biggest. It's their worst second weekend drop in history, besting 62% by the previous record holder, Spider-Man Homecoming and Ant-Man and the Wasp, both of them. Uh, still want, went out to do solid totals, even after that drop, I want to mention. But um, so, you know, with that, 
NATO. NATO is the National Association of Theater Owners. They're the ones that put on uh, what used to be called Show West, but it's now called CinemaCon. They're they're the organization of all the movie theater owners, and they are they've been so against this day and date thing. They've been they've been the ones that have been pushing against the studios to that wanted to release premium VOD, and they released this <laughs> this press release, uh, basically saying that you know i'll read a quote from it here despite assertions that this pandemic era improvised release strategy was a success for disney and the simultaneous release model is it demonstrates that an exclusive theatrical release means more revenue for all the stakeholders in every cycle of the movie's release so NATO is basically, you know, yelling to the rafters, being like, you know, if Black Widow was just released in theaters and didn't get a release on Disney Plus, it would have had longer legs at the the box office. It could have made money at, um, you know, on home video on Disney Plus later on, and uh, everybody else is everybody's losing on uh, on the money here. Brad, what do you think? I mean, it's one of those things where. We're we're still like I said with you know Space Jam you know it's it's not a super impressive haul but in these times it still works and so I I hesitate to say that this is something that like it should be like a huge concern you know because we're talking about a, a mishmash of you know different things that have affected the box office from it being available on Disney Premier Access to audiences not fully coming back to theaters yet. So the since it's only it's only five percent more of a drop from previous wide releases, that's not you know a terrible thing. I'm sure it'll end up hurting you know Disney and Marvel's bottom line a little bit, uh, but at the same time, you know it's it's not as if you know Marvel movies are are on the way out and people are are caring less. I don't think you know this could be a matter of just um, the timing. No, but like, it, it, is it an indicator of like this model of release of doing? day and date like is this gonna re- result in the studios making less money i mean i i doubt it because I, I i honestly think that the previous box office performance of movies you know right now shows that people are ready to, to come back to theaters but right now we're just still in such an uncertain time that they're not coming out in full droves and that that's why studios are still you know doing this day and day date release for some of these movies and that's not going to be the case for you know future marvel movies that's just that's not going to happen you know with uh eternals or or spider-man uh no way home so i don't think that we're going to see the same same issue as far as movies maybe that are not as reliable at the box office um i think it remains to be seen you know some studios have have talked about how they'll they'll kind of do consider on a case-by-case basis which movies they'll give you know a longer theatrical release to or um, give a VOD release to earlier, you know, in its uh, theatrical window. So it's for now, I feel like it's still too early just because we're still yeah. com- coming out of the pandemic and we really won't have a grasp on, it, I would say, until towards the end of the year or early next year. Yeah. And honestly, like if you compare it to like Ant-Man and the Wasp, which was like close by that number, like I think Ant-Man and the Wasp is a, like a c- comparable franchise, right? Because they, ap- you know, they appeared in a previous film. Uh, I, I don't think Black Widow was like ever going to do, you know, the numbers that, you know, the biggest of the Marvel movies do. Maybe yeah, a sure. Black Widow 2 if if they could have done that. But um, yeah, 
So I, I don't know. I, it's going to be interesting to see this war because I think this is just heating up of uh, NATO and the theater owners pushing back against studios wanting to do this day and date release and uh, what, what, what the after effects of this pandemic is going to provide. But OK, we, we have a lot more to talk about. Uh, let's go on to Loki. Uh, the, the first story we have here is not a spoiler. But the director of Loki season one is not going to return for season two. Brad, tell us about it. Yes, unfortunately, um, while doing press rounds uh, in the wake of the finale for the first season of Loki, uh, director Kate Heron confirmed that she will not be returning for a second season. Um, It's not really anything where there's like a a problem or any disagreements, but uh, she signed on for the first season and, uh, initially, when they started working on the show, they weren't planning on doing a second season. So it's not as if this was meant to be like a big uh, deal for Kate Heron to stay on and stick around and stay with Loki as long as it lasted. Um, the cliffhanger at the end of the second season was kind of a last minute de- decision once they realized they could do more with the story and keep Loki going. And so she's uh, Kate Heron will um, won't be doing anything for Loki season two. Uh, she's she's not doing anything else with Marvel either. She's got some other stuff I guess she's working on that is yet to be announced. Um, but yeah, so she's just focused on more on her stuff. But she'd love you know working with Marvel and would be glad to do something with again. But it's just not happening right now. Yeah, I I do want to take to task one, one statement you said there, Brad, that like the this ending was like a last minute decision. I feel like you mean that was a last minute in like the. While they were developing the series, yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Right, it's yeah. Not, it, yeah, it's not like they were, like it would like they were getting towards the end of the show and they were like, <laughs> "Oh shit, we should probably do a second season." It's it came later on, like once they got in, into yeah. shooting and they were like, "Okay, we this is something we can keep going." Yeah, because you you can't get an ending to a series a season like that and not have something planned, right? Yeah, but yeah, okay. Now we're gonna get into spoilers for Loki and Black Widow. So if you haven't seen Loki, tune out now. Okay, so Loki director Kate Heron, uh, the the <laughs> how do I talk about this? Okay, so everybody here has seen Loki at this point. If you haven't t- tuned out now, uh, in the last episode they introduce uh, He Who Remains, who is a character who is going to appear in other Marvel movies, including Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantum Mania. And it turns out uh, the director, Kate Heron, had a role in casting this this character. Brad, tell us about it. Yeah, so we've known for a while that uh, Kane the Conqueror was going to be the villain of Ant-Man and the Wasp. It was announced last fall, and Jonathan Majors, who plays He Who Remains in Loki, was cast in that role. So when it was finally confirmed in the finale that Jonathan Majors was making an appearance in Loki, as He Who Remains, which is a, a variant of Kang the Conqueror in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, then we knew that this was going to be a much bigger deal uh, in the future. And He Who Remains himself confirmed that by saying that there, are, once the multiverse uh, is opened up, there are a bunch of variants of himself and Kang the Conqueror that will begin to wage a multiversal war and wreak havoc across the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so since Loki was introducing this character before... Uh, he would become a much bigger player in the MCU. She worked alongside Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania director Peyton Reed uh, in casting Jonathan Majors for the role, which is pretty cool that they, you know, um, brought her in on the process and had to figure it out since she was the one responsible for introducing the first version of this character uh, that we're going to see in the MCU. 
Yeah, it's also interesting, though, because I feel like Jonathan Majors and how he performs this character in this series is probably not how King the Conqueror, how he's going to perform King the Conqueror. I, I feel like that's going to be a different persona altogether. So she's ca- responsible for casting this guy that's going to have to go do other things. But I, I Marvel's done that in the past. Like, um, what, like the Russo brothers cast Tom Holland as Spider-Man for Civil War. And that was before, you know, he, he was going to go on to the, the Spider-Man homecoming. And I think they did the same thing with Captain Marvel. I, am I right about that? Or maybe it was the other way around on that one. But um, yeah, so obviously directors are responsible for casting characters that end up having bigger lives through other filmmakers and and uh, storytellers in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But I think it's cool that they in, they let her uh, have a hand in this casting because he has such a huge role in this in this Marvel show. And also, it just occurred to me now, Brad. I was I was thinking about this while I was talking. How you know? Uh, how these shows, these Marvel shows, are kind of like these showcases for these characters. Like WandaVision is kind of like the birth of Scarlet Witch, and how Falcon and Winter Soldier is obviously the birth of uh, the new Captain America. And I was thinking what Loki means. Loki is more so a surprise origin story for King the Conqueror than it is actually Loki. I mean, I guess it is Loki coming into his own, you know, uh, being a anti-hero protagonist. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just didn't expect that going into the show. So, uh, yeah. Um, and... Uh, and also, like, did did we learn that that character was actually previously owned by Fox? Well, so it's we we didn't like. I mean, it's so it's it's a bit complicated because uh, <laughs> so um, one of the versions of Kang the Conqueror is Nathaniel Richards, and he's the father of Reed Richards, Mister Fantastic, and the Fantastic Four. And so there's a, a bit of a complicated history where Fox um, had the rights to Kang. Um, so, but then once that character came over now, since Fox is part of Disney, it didn't, it wasn't a, a, a big problem anymore. So all the characters of the X-Men and Fantastic Four, uh, comics are now back under the, the Marvel umbrella. So they didn't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah. So he's now the first MCU character previously owned by Fox. I mean, actually, well, so, so interestingly enough, te- <laughs> I mean, so technically before this happened, uh, Deadpool kind of became the first one in a weird roundabout way because oh, yeah. because last week there was this uh, promo for Ryan Reynolds' new movie Free Guy that had Deadpool and uh, Korg, the character from Thor Ragnarok voiced by Taika Waititi, uh, sitting together on a couch and doing a reaction video to the Free Guy trailer. So technically that's kind of the first one, but in yeah, in, in the grand scheme of the MCU, this is the first like legitimate and meaningful appearance of a, a previously owned Marvel character uh, that was in Fox's wheelhouse. Yeah. Just worth noting. Okay. Um, let's, uh, let's move on to black, Wi- black widow. So if you haven't seen the ending of black widow, you'll want to, you know, leave us now. Uh, but in the ending, we have the introduction, or what would it be the introduction? I guess in the uh, in if you put the the series of events in chronological order 
uh, introduction of a new character. And uh, we, we were theorizing on, on the character. Uh, we, were, we were theorizing on our, our, our podcast about where this character, what their future is in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And now Kevin Feige gives us a little bit of a hint. Brad, tell us about it. Yes, Kevin Feige uh, obviously is making publicity rounds for uh, Black Widow right now. And conversation turned to the credit scene from the end of Black Widow, which brings back uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus as Contessa Valentina Allegra de Fontaine. And she, uh, as we've talked about before, she she gives Yelena Belova, the character played by Florence Pugh, uh, Natasha Romanoff's adoptive sister, um, some somewhat manipulative uh, news about how her sister uh, died and says that it was at the hands of Hawkeye. And so we're, we're made to see understand that Yelena has been working for uh, Val for some time. And this comes after her debut in Falcon the Winter Soldier, where she recruited uh, John Walker as U.S. agent for some kind of work. We don't know what. <laughs> and so uh, Kevin Feige was finally asked, you know, exactly what Val is up to. Um, and in perfect Feige response, he teased but didn't give much, you know, information by saying she's doing something. She seems to be in recruit- recruitment mode. Does Elena already work for her? They seem to have a connection at that point. Yes. And so uh, beyond that, you know, Feige kind of <laughs> pretended like he's a guy who's just a fan and doesn't know <laughs> what's going on. Uh, but he's, um, <laughs> he says, you know, the notion of bringing her into the world was always something if we could find the right thing was something we wanted to do. And when this role came about and the opportunity to have her in Black Widow and Falcon and Winter Soldier and maybe in some other things coming up, uh, Julie Louis-Dreyfus was totally on board and really into it. So it's an amazing addition to the world. And I look forward to people being surprised by just where she'll show up next. <laughs> And about that moment, it's funny because Black Widow screenwriter Eric Pearson uh, said in an interview recently with The Hollywood Reporter, he was asked uh, if, <laughs> if if he knew where this was going because he wrote this moment that is at the end of this movie. And he actually admitted that he has no idea that like he was just kind of um, told what it needed to accomplish but uh, there's a quote here. He's like, you know, I, I was like, who am I screwing over? Something is going on. I don't have an answer for this. Pearson told The Hollywood Reporter with a laugh. They were like, you don't need to. We're going to figure that out. I remember writing and feeling super guilty. I hope whatever writer I'm working on this next, who is working on this next chapter is going to be okay with what I've done for them. <laughs> I don't know. I, is it only me that finds that extremely funny that like the people that are responsible for these like end credit stingers on these Marvel movies don't necessarily have any idea what they're even setting up? Yeah, for sure. And I think part of that too, you know, is maybe to Marvel's benefit because it means that they don't have to get too specific in the scene and it allows them some freedom to like play with whatever is going to happen in the future as opposed to locking them into something that could easily change as, you know, things go on. Yeah, this used to really bug me. This used to annoy me because part of me is like, you know, the whole argument of like Star Wars should have had a, you know, a treatment planned out for the sequel trilogy. Why didn't they have a plan? And then the other part of it is like, if you don't like, um, the, you know, the Marvel comics themselves operate in this way where one writer will write an arc and leave it off on, you know, certain way for another writer to take over and have to continue that story and there isn't really much of a plan and it, it always kind of bugged me with the marvel cinematic universe because there's things that don't really make sense like there's this moment 
I forget which movie this was. Was this Civil War or was it Ant-Man where like Thanos gets the Infinity Gauntlet out of a safe and he says, fine, I'll take care of this myself or something. Something like that. And then we get like uh, Infinity War where he doesn't take care of himself. He has like these, you know, uh, this whole ragtag group of uh, helpers. So so it doesn't really make much sense. But um, how do you feel about this? I mean, for me, it's not quite as egregious as I think the issues there were with the new Star Wars trilogy and not planning yeah. things out from the get-go because, you know, Marvel does have the the ability to, like, adapt and be flexible and figure out how to shape things to fit into the other movies and things like that. And it's a little bit easier for them, too, because they have a whole comic mythology that they can work from that allows them to, you know, make connections and repurpose characters and, and all this sort of thing. So in, in this case, it, it works for them and it allows, you know, them some, some freedom that actually helps. Um, but like, yeah, there's just some stories, you know, they re- it requires more planning and things to like get ahead, especially just because of the structure of Star Wars, as opposed to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is this ongoing, you know, all all encompassing overarching yeah. thing. You know, the other thing is, I think like the comics, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is set up in a certain way where they have someone like an editor that's overseeing the whole thing. They right. have, you know, a Kevin Feige and that's not what star Wars didn't have that uh, for the sequel trilogy. And I feel like that's what they lost because you're right. It doesn't, you don't need, you don't need a treatment for the entire sequel trilogy. You just need someone to keep it consistent. So it feels like it's, you know, a uh, continuing story, not written by uh, two different filmmakers at war with each other, right. but yeah. Um, okay. Uh, let's talk about our final story. This is also Black Widow, uh, which apparently could have featured Iron Man or Hawkeye. Kind of, I guess, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was. Um, these are mostly like rumors that started to get like accepted as as fact, and they kind of got blown out of proportion. Uh, the first one was there's this ongoing rumor that uh, Robert Downey Jr. was going to make an appearance as Tony Stark in Black Widow. Uh, but that's something that writer Eric Pearson um, was a little confused by. And initially he denied that there was ever any consideration of a Tony Stark appearance. But then he remembered um, that there was at one time a very early draft of Black Widow that made reference to including uh, the the end scene from Civil War where Tony and Natasha are talking to each other. But it was never meant to be a new scene with Tony Stark that um, would have utilized Robert Downey Jr. in any way. It was just old footage, you know, potentially even an alternate take from the footage they shot for Captain America Civil War, just as kind of a reminder to let the audience know the time period in which Black Widow took place. So there was never meant to be any actual new scene with tony stark so that's why that you know didn't happen but what about hawkeye i feel like hawkeye is what a lot of us expected especially when they when hawkeye and um black widow had that uh interaction and what movie was it they were talking about avengers and like they talk about being in budapest and you and i remember budapest very differently And yeah, and so a lot of people thought that we would see Hawkeye popping up at some point in Black Widow, especially since in the movie they do end up going back to to Budapest. But as we find out, uh, the she didn't really need Hawkeye during this. The the, what was happening since she already had help from Yelena and then her her adoptive you know mother and father. But we do find out uh, what Black Widow and Hawkeye did do in Budapest previously because 
uh, she ends up using some familiar locations that she and Hawkeye had to hide in when they were on the run before. And the main reason that they actually didn't bring back Hawkeye for, for uh, any you know assistance to her is that director um, Kate Shortland talked about Kevin Feige actually being the one who said, quote, she doesn't need the boys. So they really wanted to make an effort for Black Widow to just stand on her own and not call in any of the other Avengers, you know, even if it, even if it wasn't any of, you know, the boys, as he says, they just wanted her to be able to do this on her own. And then also with her adoptive family, which is a big part of, you know, fleshing out her story. So, so that's why Hawkeye doesn't appear in Black Widow. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense. Uh, if you want to find out more of any of the stories we talked about in today's podcast, we'll link them in the show notes. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast in Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow.